Hello there. Just a quick word about this week's episode. There's strong language employed, and we also discuss depression and suicide. So if you're in any way affected by that, please do talk to someone. Okay, thanks for listening. You're listening to Q Presents The Making Of. That sounds kind of odd, don't you think? Long time no see. Nice to see you. How are you? Yeah, good. Very formal. Yeah, well, that's the way to do it. Let's <laughs> get all the swearing up. I think light swearing's allowed. It's light swearing. <laughs> okay. Mind if I have real vape <laughs> sucking in between? I guess so, yeah. <laughs> it's really discreet. So this is, what this is, is just a deep biographical interview and musical going over. How do you feel about that? Okay, it's already terrifying. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I just What's the worst that can happen? Well, because I will just blurt something out and well, then I'll good. wake up at four o'clock in the morning going, oh my God, I can't believe I said that. And that's the... That's the Issue. Well, obviously, that's what we're aiming for. Yeah, but yeah. no shit, yeah. Q <laughs> presents The Making of, and I'm Mickey Brenny. Hello, I'm Ted Kessler, and this is Q Presents The Making of, a weekly podcast brought to you by the world's best music magazine, Q. Each week, we meet up with a pop star in our central London basement and join them on a trip through the past. Who are they? Where does their music come from? And what are they all about? Let's find out. My guest this week is Mickey Bireni. Mickey spent much of the 90s simply known as Mickey from Lush, the band that she formed as singer in 1987 with her school friend Emma Anderson on guitar and drummer Chris Ackland, whom she'd met at North London Poly. Lush were a band who hit an unusual sweet spot somewhere between 60s pop, the Cocteau Twins and punk attitude. Of four albums, they were absolutely brilliant, but then in 1996, Chris Ackland killed himself and the band came to an abrupt and tragic halt. Since then, Mickey's worked at a sub-editor on magazines, as well as bringing up her two children. There was a Lush reunion in in 2015, and now Mickey's formed a new band called Piroshka. Piroshka. Piroshka, with her partner Moose, Justin Welsh from Elastica, and Mick Conroy from Modern English. That's right. Correct. So... How are you, Mickey? Nice to see you. I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm a bit stressed because I've just come from work and dashed here. No. But, I mean, we haven't seen each other really. I mean, you say we've seen each other more recently than 1994. Yeah, like maybe 1996 or something, but it's still a long yeah. time. Yeah. Um, how's it been since then? What, uh, what have you, been, you said you've dashed from work. What have you been, <laughs> where have you been working? I work at a magazine as a... Well, they call it a production editor. You know, these weird job titles that basically... Oh, I know work. production editors. Okay. I work you know, production editors. It's when you've, you know... You run the show. subbing, and then they think, we don't know what to do with you. We'll just give you a load of other pointless tasks and call you a production editor. So. Well, you have to get the flat plan together, don't you? you Ooh. Well, I, zipped, <laughs> I mean, I've worked in magazines a long time, and someone said to me, Ted, can you get a flat plan together? I would actually do that noise, and I would be scared. <laughs> yes, but you'd only have to be shown once. Do you know what I mean? I don't know. 
Oh, I think so. I think it's like when you get like, you know, a plum around and they go, oh, well, you know, that's gone and that's gone. And you're like terrified and it's actually just a washer or something. Okay. You know, flat plants are really simple. I can show you afterwards. No, it's fine. (laughs) And how is it to be back in a band? It's really nice, actually. Mm. Really nice. Partly because it was so unexpected, you know. How did it Um, come about? Well... Because the, I mean, to be honest with you, even the Lush reunion, I was really tentative about doing it. It came up a few times and I just thought, oh God, you know, I haven't played, I haven't sung, I've got to learn it all, all over again. And it was would have been really disruptive, you know, the kids, everything, it just seemed like a real fag actually. Um, and then I think basically this manager who Emma met, who just... I think was a bit of a fantasist actually sort of convinced us and um but anyway the upshot is is that we did record and we did make a record um and we went on tour and you know I have to tread a little bit carefully because um you know it all exploded kind of slightly badly but um the good bits were really good you know the actual making a record and I thought the gigs were brilliant you know played the roundhouse we never played anywhere that big before it was brilliant so um, because Justin had stood in on drums for that um, and then when Phil didn't do the very last gig Oh, we had to scrabble around and actually Moose suggested Mick, which was great. And then we were just, we had to rehearse like 21 songs he had to learn for one gig. You know what I mean? And he was, you know, coming around to my kitchen. We were going through all the songs. Anyway, most of the rehearsals were the three of us. Emma had like, you know, childcare stuff and all that. So we did the bulk of it. But we had a really nice time together. And so when... Lush did finish. It was Justin who was going, oh, you know, if you want to... You should do a solo thing. You should do a solo thing and I'll play drums. <laughs> and I was like, I'm not doing a solo thing. I'm not a solo thing person. But um, I did say if I did anything, it would be a band and it would be equal shares. I'm not doing this whole nonsense, which I think was the whole nightmare of Lush with two main people and I don't know you know it was a complicated setup so I was just really like it would have to be democratic and it would be everyone writes and everyone gets involved and so it kind of started from there and then we just you know he sent me a bunch of songs little bits you know who sent you the songs Justin sent you know he might just sent literally like a drum track with him shouting on it (laughs) okay all right well we'll see what we can do with that and then files were sort of sent back and forth you know I sort of added like a vocal I think well is this I don't know it sound all right and then Mick would come back with a bass line and just all sort of started to gel but it took a while and we didn't think there was no kind of like right we've got this grand plan this is our schedule this is what we're going to do it was just really might as well have been starting a band at 16 you know the way it worked it was little bits and pieces you know someone would Mick would go off on tour come back oh you know I've done a bit more. I mean, it was really organic. And we kept it really quiet. Well, we kind of, we were really enthusiastic about it, but Mm. we kept it really, 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 really quiet. We didn't want anyone to know because I didn't really want the pressure of people going, oh, oh, Mickey's starting a band, like, you know, babble, babble. And people already either expecting too much or or crushing it before it's even got off the ground. So, Where's the name come from? 
What's the name? Oh, is the that name. annoying? Question? It's not really. It's just that we tried every name going. We had lists. It's always a really embarrassing thing when you're in a band and you go, let's come up with a name. And when you have to come up with them, you think it's brilliant and you go, oh, you know, I think we should be called, you know, tabloid superstars or whatever. And yeah. someone else goes, that's awful. Can't call ourselves that. But every name we came up with has basically been taken. The whole of the English language has been mined unless you find two really odd words that go together. So we went for the... We tried the Japanese for a while, tried a load of Japanese, all of those taken as well. And then, so I thought, well, the Hungarian thing is probably a little bit less developed. And that is also your background too, so... Yes, it has to have a little bit of relevance. So that's an excellent pivot to go back in time. Oh, God, okay. Uh, let's talk about your childhood. <laughs> Where did you grow up? You grew up in London, didn't you? I know that. I did grow up in London, in Wilsdon. And mainly, how, how would you characterise the early years for Mickey? Mickey's early oh, years. Oh God! I mean, it's not great, you know. My parents were sort of—they're quite glamorous, I suppose. You know, my mum was only about twenty-four when she met my dad, and it was all a bit. You know, he went to the Tokyo Olympics and he was a journalist. He'd come over in 56 from Hungary. So he met her and at the Olympics. He went to the Tokyo Olympics as a performer? As a journalist. He was a sports journalist. Yes. And uh, so he kind of got to... He met my mum there and then he came back to the UK and they had this very romantic sort of correspondence. He was actually going to Australia to try and track down his dad, who he hadn't seen, you know, since he was three it's all very complicated. Anyway, the long and the short of it is, is that she ended up eloping and coming over here. And it would have been lovely, except my dad was a philandering nightmare. So having had me, you know, he was just kind of all over the place and she sort of had enough. So they split when I was about four. And after that, I just sort of bounced between the two of them. So there was a lot of... It was quite unsettled, actually. Yeah. Lots of different schools, lots of different locations. Yeah. I mean, Dad sort of stayed in Willesden, and I'd go back there. But Mum moved to Windsor for a while, and then she moved to America. And that was really quite tricky. You know, I got kind of... I had to sort of choose between them. I didn't like my stepdad, so I didn't want to go to America. No. And so it's a big I change to her as well when you were a kid, Going to America, I think. So. Yeah, because at the time people were like, oh my gosh, America. But I think it probably would have been a really bad move, actually. Because yeah. I had quite a lot of problems <laughs> even here. Yeah. And I think there it would have been worse, actually. But I guess one of one of the things you did have was music. When did you get started into music? When was the... Well, I think... Uh, I mean, I, I've got, apart from the usual, you know, just watching the Eurovision Song Contest or you know, whatever as a kid. Yeah. See, I didn't have any older siblings, so there isn't that music handed down or anything. And my parents weren't not particularly into anything that much, you know, apart from the standard Elvis and mm. whatever. And um, so really my first memory is when I went to a school in Labrook Grove um, which was rough as houses, but <laughs> they were quite... That whole scar thing was happening at the time. And and even things like Gary Newman, I've just got these really vivid memories of sort of tabloid newspapers with pop stars on the cover yeah. and kids at school who were kind of 
I mean, maybe it is, it's the music that suited it. You know, things like Madness and stuff are really quite well suited to sort of 11 and 12 year olds, yeah, you know. Totally. It's quite a good way in. Yeah. And, and even things like Blondie, you know, it's sort of, I mean, it was the stuff that was in the charts, but it was really, you know, it wasn't difficult like I think a lot of music can be, like good music. It was a good era, though, I think, for both music that was sort of pop music and good music at the same time. Like, it crossed over, didn't it? Between, Absolutely. Yeah. It had a sort of glamour to it yeah. and um, and an attitude, I think. See, I can, I can sort of remember the Sex Pistols being on Nationwide, and I was probably about 10 or something then, but that just looked terrifying. Yeah, <laughs> that didn't make fun. me think, ooh, let's get into that. I just thought, whoa, stay well away. <laughs> Whereas I think the kind of scar stuff, even though it was really political and kind of, you know, a lot of it was very confrontational, um, it felt more relatable, especially I think in London. Maybe it's an urban thing as well. well I think the know? idea between all that scar stuff was that it was inclusive, wasn't it? So it was, yeah. it was, it was, it was multicultural and it was different styles of music. Whereas punk, especially the Pistols, was very much go away. Yes. We're going to destroy you. Go away from us. It was like you had to pass a test yes. to be accepted. Yeah. So yeah. if you're like 12 years old, it was, I found that quite scary. Like, oh, God, who are these men? <laughs> um, and then you go to school. You, go, you meet Emma yeah. at Queen, quite a richy school, Queen's yeah, College. Yeah, yeah, how did so, that? How did you end up at such a... Well, because I'd been... I think by the time I went to Queen's, I'd been to about probably about six or seven different schools. Right. I'd been really pinged around. And like I said, I was at the school in Labrook Grove. And when my mum moved to America, she decided that, you know, she wanted me to go to a private school. She wasn't happy with the situation. So she kind of, you know, engineered it. So I went there, which was probably quite a good thing, actually, because I was bunking off and all over the place, you know. And even the school them said, themselves said, yes, I think she might need a little bit of extra yeah. <laughs> help. So anyway, I went to Queen's and... Um, it was a funny school then. Uh, I think there were kind of some people who were, you know, super, super, super rich. Quite a lot of, I don't know, you know, there was me and Emma and there was a handful of us girls who had parents who could, they could just about afford to send us there. Yeah. Um, but you sort of didn't really fit in because although you could just about afford the fees, you couldn't really afford the skiing trips or the South Mountain Street yeah. clothes or the balls or the any of that. And so you were, you know, I think that's what actually knitted us together a bit. And because we were sort of rejected, really. Yeah. I mean, in a way, I would have loved to have fitted in with Camilla and, you know, all of these people, but they just didn't want me, yeah. <laughs> really. And you sort of, that, that little group you spoke about they they remained your friends for a long time didn't they They yeah yeah yeah. absolutely and it was great as well because we none of us actually had older siblings we were all kind of exploring music from our own angles and when we sort of came together it just made such a difference to have people to go to gigs with you know so you weren't just on your own And yes, we started with like, you know, Haircut 100 at the Hammersmith Odeon or something. But you'd find yourself sort of going to see a band and then a support band. No, and it was great. But, you know, it was the obvious kind of what you're going to go to when you're 12 years old or 13 years old. And you go to these sort of, you know, gigs that your parents can drop you off at. And I think as we got more and more into music, especially in London, you know, gigs were really, really cheap. So you could... 
you know, go and then see a support band and then go and see their support band. And before you knew it, you know, you were downstairs at the Clarendon with, you know, 150 people seeing, I don't know, the surfing lung or something, whatever. You, know? you are pretty much described my own teenage life. <laughs> right. yeah. And there was a real, you know, there was a kind of real easy way to sort of get into those things, actually. Mm. And it was quite welcoming. You know, people weren't really hostile. There was loads of people selling fanzines and leafleting. And I don't know, it was quite, you know, it wasn't just a load of people standing around at a gig being really serious. There was quite a lot of community yeah. activity going on. I think also there was a period where you could go to those gigs on your own, which I don't think people would go to gigs on their own quite as much now, or maybe there aren't as many gigs. But it felt like there was there were so many venues that you could just walk into, say, the Clarendon or whatever, yes. and just... And just sort of mingle in I don't know I, I definitely felt that well plus you'd recognise people from previous gigs yeah exactly because yeah. I think the first gig I went to on my own I was about 16 and usually I'd either go with like Emma or you know Maxine Funny whatever There'd usually one person at least if not all of you would go together and um, I got a ticket to see the fall at the Lyceum and no one would bloody well go with me and I was just like oh my god I've got to go on my own and it was such a weird gig to go to on your own because it was just full of I don't know people who looked like they weren't sort of geography uh, teachers yeah, yeah like people with sort of civil servant jobs and yeah. but as well as kind of punks and goths it was really mixed and actually I just met a load of people at that gig it was really bizarre so mm. people were quite quite friendly what was the most uh, adventurous gig trip you went on with uh, with your friends for, for example, out-of-town gigs or something like that? Oh, I think the first gigs that we went to out-of-town, I think it was me and Emma going to the Sisters of Mercy. Because so I think we saw them... We got in with a group of people and then they were travelling to some gigs. Um, and I seem to remember going to Leeds to see them. We went to Oxford. I think me and Emma, I do remember getting the coach to Oxford oh no we got the train and we it was an Ox Oxford poly mm. and um it was super exciting because going outside London I suppose it's all a bit more casual and Andrew Eldridge was actually just like sitting in the bar having a drink and we were just like oh my god I can't believe it he's right there and I think we were so enamoured of the whole experience that we missed our train home right. so we had to we went to sleep at the bus station and then we got arrested what, for sleeping in the bus station? Yes, the police thought we were runaways. So they took us to the police station huh. where basically the place was just jumping with about 50 people who were completely off their tits and didn't leave us alone all night. Emma was getting really angry because they kept saying, they kept saying she looked like Mark Almond and it was really stressing her out. And basically... <laughs> We were just like, do you know what? If you'd have left us at the bus station, we'd have been fine. Safer. Yes. And it was quite aggressive in this police station anyway. Yeah. But it was things like, yeah, I do remember going to see the Higsons in like Uxbridge and getting stranded there and having to walk up the motorway. And yeah. someone actually pulled over and said, you know, you're not meant to be walking on the motorway. <laughs> Did give us a lift back. No, that's but good. Yeah. Q presents The Making Of. You just want that over and over again. Q presents the making of. <laughs> Is that how it's done? Q presents the making of. Q presents the making of. <laughs> when did you? When did the idea of you be, being in a band or making music sort of formalise into your mind? Well, we started first of all. Emma 
joined a band called the Rover Girls. She's playing bass. Because I think she'd gone to Ealing College. So she met, you know, there was this sort of, after, you know, Queens, we sort of moved in our own little circles for a while. And then I joined a band called the Bugs and I was playing bass as well. So you decided to be, you decided to be a bassist or just... They just asked. I was literally, I'd I'd gone to see them a few times and then their bass player, Lloyd, was moving to San Francisco and they were like, yeah, we're looking for a bass player. If you you know someone, can you let me know? And I said, I'll play bass. Right. Never played bass in my life at all. I had a week to learn. um, So I joined them. That was really good fun, actually. We did little tours of Germany and... How hard were the songs to play on bass? Well, I'd probably just played them really badly. Right. You know. And no really noticed. Yeah, I think they were sort of one note. There wasn't anything that complicated, actually. Right. It was more, it was kind of, everything was just very fast and garagey, and it was more that the singer was just kind of quite wild on stage and leaping about. So yeah. it was more, no one was standing around going, oh, bum note. Yeah, you know, it wasn't okay. that kind of a band. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, but uh, I think, so basically... I think, I mean, I do think it was Emma mainly who, in the Rover Girls, just, I think she just wanted to write music. I think there's also maybe slightly that she'd gone out with um, Kevin from My Bloody Valentine. And I think she got a taste of what it's like to, you know, be the sort of creative force. Yeah. I also think that when he they split up she just wanted to really piss him off so and have her own band and I'll show him so I think that was basically when we started you know writing I think it was really her that felt that she just wanted to write her own songs actually and not be just you know performing other someone else's stuff so we I mean it was really halting you know we I I remember sitting in her kitchen and kind of plugging in and sort of (laughs) Okay, let's go, you know, and just realising, well, I can't do it this way because she'd sort of play, you know, we just, we just weren't good enough musicians. You know, there's no way someone could just play four chords and then I go, okay, so let me just work something out quickly. It was like, no, you're going to have to give me a week yeah. to go away and think about how to do this. Um, and actually, I think that's how uh, we ended up writing very separately because it was easier for one person to just go and write the lot and come back and go, right, there's your bit, there's your bit, um, and then just uh, play it together that way. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, And when did Chris and Steve Rippon come on board? Um, Pretty soon after, I think, because I think once we had a few songs, um, then it really was like, well, we need a band. And I'd started at North London Poly, and um, I just asked them. I'd met Chris... I'd got talking to him because we were um, because he was wearing a Southern Death Cult T-shirt. Yeah. So sweet. <laughs> <laughs> it was that classic bonding of like I've got the red hair, you've got the Southern Death Cult T-shirt. Yeah. I think we should chat. Yeah. And um, and then Steve, who was just on my course and talked a lot about music and you know it was just people I met and it was just really easy to go like, well, you know, do you all want to be in this band? Yeah, all right, you know, got nothing better to do apart from some crappy degree. So um, <laughs> so that was that, really. Yeah, and uh, what were those early gigs like as Lush? Describe. Shambolic, um, you know, for me, I think 
we were all really nervous. It was just a matter of wanting to join in. I'd been to so many, so many hundreds of gigs in London by then. And there were some great bands, but there were also some bands who weren't that great, but they just seemed to be having a really good time. You know, you could just get up and be third support at, you know, the Hope and Anchor. And, you know, it was a bit of a laugh. Yeah. And I think we just wanted to have a go, really. Everyone was in a bloody band as well. Everyone, yeah. you know, and you just wanted to be kind of part of the club. Were there many uh, bands with, say, two female singer-songwriters at, at, at the helm of the band? Because that Not seemed to me really. quite unusual at the time. Yeah, I mean, I think there was also the fact that neither of us felt we were, you know, singer like front woman material you know we had Mariel singing with us first mm. and she was pretty sort of you know you know not exactly foot on the monitor kind of leaping about you know so we didn't yeah. really feel like that would have been our role so I think being part of the writing thing was more important because you felt you had a stake in it rather than coming on board as some oh I'm going to be the eye candy I mean funny enough when Emma was in the Rover Girls I did go along to one rehearsal once and uh, they had these like backing singers and they said right. oh you know you could join in and you know wave a tambourine around and I sort of had a go and I just thought this is pants really isn't it you know um, so I think I can't really imagine you in that role McKeith <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well there was a lot of whooping as well yeah. in this band like and I just thought oh I'm not doing this but um <laughs> You know, bless them, they did a great job. It just wasn't for me. Yeah. Anyway, so, and and also, you know, to join someone else's band, even as a guitarist, or I know I'd done it as a bass player, but, you know, you actually have to be really good. And I wasn't, you know, I wasn't a great singer. I wasn't a great guitarist. None of us were. You're quite low self-esteem. Self well, I mean, thick. all I'm saying is, is that, you know, I hadn't spent five years in a bedroom, like learning every Jimi Hendrix song or whatever. Yeah. So it's not like I could turn up to an audition and wow someone. It was a bit more... You know, it was more about meeting like-minded people. Well, let's just see what we can come in up with mm. to the best of our ability. And it was more about the fun that that sparked of, of being together. So the being together came before the kind of, hey, I like what you're doing musically. And that's how it sort of developed, really. But I don't know. I mean, there were bands. You know, what I think was quite interesting about what became, you know, called the shoegazing scene or even you know, pre that, is there were quite a lot of women in bands. I mean, you know, Valentine's clearly, I mean, this was mm. before Belinda, but I think, you know, you had Debbie and um, what's her face? Debbie, who was later in Curve as yeah. well. Yeah. You know, she was always around in bands and there were But kind it, was, of, it all sort of happened at once in the same sort of two or three year period, whereas before that, there hadn't been that prevalent. You all sort of emerged... I don't know what happened previously to make all this happen at once, but you all sort of came out of the same era. Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, now that you say it, I am trying to think of, yeah, stuff that was before. But you're right, throwing muses, pixies, pixies as well. Same sort of era. I mean, it was a very 4AD thing, wasn't it? Because I suppose it was XML Deutschland, you know, mm. used to go and see them and they had all... One of them was a bloke, weren't they? But I can't remember. I don't know, I'm nodding, but I'm can't, <laughs> I can't even picture XML Deutschland. <laughs> How, so you mentioned 4AD. How did 4AD become your label? Because that that's quite a big leap, isn't it? Yeah. From playing at Hope and Anchor. To I mean, I was signed. shocked, seriously. Yeah. Um, I think what happened is Emma was quite well connected. I'm going to be honest here, right? And she had worked with Jeff Barrett 
and from heavenly yes it would become heavenly yeah. yeah so i think in in the kind of um you know she she had a few connections so when we started playing you know, it wasn't that difficult for us to get on the bill at places. We did know a lot of the bands already. And it was, yeah, 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 you can go on first if you want. And, you know, we knew the people who put the gigs on at the Falcon because we were always there. Yeah. And then it's just really easy. You know, you're not sending in a tape and waiting for someone to get back to you. You're just turning up and going, oh, can we play next Tuesday? And then like, yeah, all right, you know. And I think equally, when we sort of demoed and decided to try and get a a record deal. I mean, it's not that someone was just going to sign us because no, because it's still it's still for Aiden. It's still a, a very high bar, and it's Ivo. What's oh, on? It's absolutely, like it's the real McCoy, isn't it? And so. I don't, I don't want to just remove the the kind of the fact that we did it wasn't work just hard. Someone at the, at the Falcon was it? Not at no. all. But yeah. all I'm saying is, is we were pretty shambolic live. We, I think, what was interesting was with Ivo in particular is that he did just see something there. He could see the the diamond in the rough um, and it just needed quite a bit of work but you know when he came to see us we played at the Falcon with the Pale Saints right I think 4AD sort of almost organised this sort of co-headliner and um, the Pale Saints played first and basically I just thought right well we might as well just pack up and fuck off home now because that was just this is just going to be embarrassing you know they were seamless right they they played their first note and they didn't stop till they get they got to the end of the set people were like taking sips of their drink while someone was still playing music it was astonishing right, right? and we came on and I don't know instantly broke a guitar string and forgot the words to whatever you know it was just abysmal and so I think the Pale Saints got signed instantly and we got put in the studio with in a kind of like, OK, I'm just going to see how it works when you've got someone with some professional capacity coming in and sort of slightly moulding this. So John Fryer, who I think had done, I'm not sure what, I, mean, I can't remember really. He worked, he'd worked with 4AD bands a lot. So, you know, he was quite a good... Um, I don't know, person to sort of uh, show us the ropes in a way, not expect yeah. too much of us and guide us a bit. and But at the same time, just capture what we did without getting too producery, you know. And um, and, and that was ostensibly, they were demos, really. But right. that's what got released to Scar, basically, because Ivo thought they were great. Well, that's good. So that was your first mini album thing that's out and about. And how, what, what do you... Th- what was the reaction to, say, in the press? How do you think you were characterised from the start? Well, again, you know, because, I mean, we did know a lot of these people. You know, we went to gigs with them. I know I keep saying, it's sort of weird because it is double-edged. You know, a lot of people used to accuse us of being, oh, they only get press because they know everyone. Yeah, people held that against you. Absolutely. Which I always thought was unfair. I'm going to say that, yeah. But, you know, there are little funny backstories because I do think, you know, when we got our first review with a picture, for instance, it was at the Cricketers, fourth on the bill, for Christ's sake, you know what I mean? And massive picture of me, right? And I don't know, it was with snuff and the senseless things. or So all these blokes who are, like, seething with resentment afterwards, right? (laughs) And Chris Roberts, you know, bless him, who just desperately fancied a mate of mine. So he wrote this review that was like, you know, oh, they're going to be bigger than the Middle East or whatever. <laughs> How to get everyone's back up. Yeah. And it was a lovely thing to say. And, you know, 
secretly in your bedroom you look at it and go like oh my god this is amazing but it was a hard thing to carry and I think there was a lot of you know that kind of expectation that was built up and you know massive features when we could barely play for like 25 minutes because that's all the songs we had so I could I could understand you know some of the resentment that people had it was just really difficult to tease apart you know what is how much of this is about the music how much of this is because actually there aren't many women in bands and a lot of these papers are struggling to have any representation of women and they've sort of cottoned on that actually it's almost sort of slightly wank fodder you know what I mean like it's quite good to have a few women in there so that blokes like cut out the pictures and stick them on their bedroom walls do you know what I mean I think I know that sounds really cynical yeah but that was there was was a shred of that after all probably I mean there probably was certainly when in 1991 1992 I think when you were yeah I remember yeah the Kevin Cummins, I don't want to denigrate Kevin, who I think is a fantastic photographer, but the uh, Kevin Cummins style, go on, let's do some topless shots. Uh, we'll do arty topless shots and that kind of thing. I think perhaps there was some thinking. Yes, uh, can I just interject and say yeah. that there's no, there was no nipple. <laughs> there were arms, no arms folded across. It was, arty. it was body pain. You know, before anyone thinks that it was like a page three of the sun photo shoot, it wasn't. <laughs> but for indie boys, it probably was. There's oh, their version. God, yes. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, but although, to be fair, I remember a ride photo shoot where he's there, you he know. Cuts both ways. and not Strict bear to the... Ch- you know what I yeah. mean? Well, they're handsome lads too. So absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And then we came to Spooky, the next album, the full, first full album, and you were working with Robin Guthrie from the Cocteau Twins, who I imagine you were a fan of before. He must have been a massive fan. Yeah. How did, the, how did this all come about? Um... Well, we'd we'd actually worked with Robin on uh, Mad Love, which was another EP. So we'd done Scar, we did Mad Love, which was a four-track EP. I mean, we then did Sweetness and Light. So there was all these dribs and drabs of EPs and singles. And in a way, I think it was a bit of a... It was a good testing ground to work with different producers because we just had no idea about recording zero. And it was actually quite good I think to get a bit of experience before we went in and recorded a full album Um, and Robin was just to us a really obvious choice you know when we worked on him with with Mad Love he was really he really wanted to work with us and we really hit it off and he was great so it was a bit of a natural choice to work on Spooky Um, and that's not to say I mean there were difficulties you know there were things like he you know it was he was massively into all these gadgets and electronica and and effects and so poor old Chris had to he didn't even get to play a real kit you know it was all triggers and stuff which I think you know he was struggling with it wasn't Bit of a blow right yeah yeah <laughs> he wasn't too <laughs> happy I'm gonna make a big album <laughs> <laughs> and you get to tap on a yeah. pad you know yeah. <laughs> um, but I think it was um you know I mean, I found it really daunting, you know, because I thought, bloody hell, he's used to working with, you know, Liz Fraser, for Christ's sake. I can barely hold a note, you know. But he was so lovely and he was. it was really great to have someone who just sort of encouraged you and tried to pull this stuff out of you because, as you know, I am quite... You can tell from this, you know, I'll take the first opportunity to sort of self-denigrate and go, well, I can't do yeah. that, I'm rubbish and whatever. So to have someone who 
was like, okay, shut up and let's just get on with this and not sort of going, oh, no, you're fabulous, darling. It wasn't that. He was just really down to earth and really friendly and, you know. Encouraging. Yeah. And enthusiastic. It was great to be in a studio and suddenly just, like, you know, whack the music up and... And he'd be like sitting there going, it's amazing, sounds fucking amazing, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And it was good fun. And when was the last time you listened to Spooky? Probably in when we were doing the Lush reunion and I had to learn the songs again. (laughs) How do you think it sounds now? How do you think it stands up? Oh, do do you know, I can't listen to my own music. I only see... It's like that Woody Allen quote, isn't it? Like, you just see the mistakes if you yeah. watch your own stuff. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that is true. Um, when did you go on Lollapalooza? When did Steve Rippon, Liv and Phil King come in? Uh, Steve left after... So after we made Spooky, he didn't tour Spooky. That's right. when Phil came in. Right, okay. So because all the earlier EPs got shoved together into Gala, Gala, for America... Yeah. We kind of did a big, big tour with that. So Steve did all of that tour. America, Japan, you know, we did the co-headline in America with Ride. There's a lot of touring. And I think he got to the end of that and went, I'm done. Thank you very much. Good night. It's not not the future for me. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. I think it was, it was, he enjoyed it, but I think it was, you know, it was full on. You did a lot of touring, especially in America, didn't you? Did you play over the years many, many times? Yeah, I mean, too much, too much. You know, I think, uh, you know, I think record companies and managers and all sorts of people get really dazzled by the idea of making it in America. Mm. And um, and I get that, but it was a bit relentless, you know, back, go back again, go back and support someone else, keep trying, you know. Mm. And some people, I mean, I can remember bands like The Flaming Lips, you know, just touring America again and again in the back of a van. Half the band had become smack addicts, you know. I mean, it's so stressful. Um, but they did make it, you know, and not just because they're a great band. I'm, I am saying they really, really worked at it. Yeah. And I think that's what it takes sometimes. And I'm not sure that was really, that was really what we wanted to do. It's exhausting. Yeah. It's a lot of time to spend with each other as well. Yeah. 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 Well, let's talk <laughs> about what, what, was the, what was the dynamic within the band's say post spooky pre split well i think when um i mean you know phil joined which was great and it was a real it was a bit of a step up you know and i think because we were touring so much we got much better actually um you know we did lollapalooza we just played so much that it was you know invariably you just get get good and um we had a proper, you know, we sort of had our crew, we had our sound man, everything really sort of gelled and we were getting really, you know, in a good place. But I think uh, we had an issue with management. So we got rid of our manager and then, and then as is the often the case, you know, it's sort of, uh, I think, you know, have, like speaking in a way, it was so easy. It was so obvious it was going to be Robin wasn't without its problems okay which have been documented elsewhere but once we'd got a bit of success especially in America you know the record did do pretty well um trying to find someone to make split with 
was, uh, you know, suddenly there's this sort of sea of possibilities and you're sort of, I don't know, going through your record collection, going, well, what about them? What about them? You know, and managers suggesting all sorts of sort of American rock producers and you could go to like, you know, L.A. for a month and record something. It's all a bit overwhelming and you think... But you feel like you shouldn't really be saying no to things. Like maybe these are really great opportunities. So I think it threw us a bit, actually. We ended up going to... Um, actually, that was before we sacked Howard. Um, you know, he he was a bit large and in charge and he wanted us to... Well, you were there. I was there. I mean, I, I mean I'm just remembering. <laughs> I was definitely there for Split, yeah. <laughs> I mean, just in the... I mean, I went out of Emma, so I mm. think we should just say that for the record. So let the record state that during this period of, <laughs> of uh, split, I was I was in the centre of this creative storm. So I told you we knew everyone. Yeah, <laughs> like... exactly, exactly. And Howard Goff, your manager, was a was a large character, and he had big plans. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> But you recorded Split at, what I do remember is coming to visit, and you at Rockfield and Stone mm. Roses are there concurrently not recording their second album for a long time. Quite. And the Charlatans were nearby too, weren't they? Yeah. Yes, yeah. they were. Were they at Mono Valley or they something? They were at Mono yeah, Valley, yeah. 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 And I think, again, you know, when you say Howard was sort of, yeah, he had big plans. He kind of had big plans for himself as well, so that was the deal. Oh, you know, we'll go to Rock. We will go to Rockfield, you know, because that's what you know legendary bands do, and go to a residential studio. And it was nice. I liked it at Rockfield. I liked Mike Hedges. I thought he was great. But it was absolutely pointless us going there because it actually isolated and cut us off a bit. Yeah. And we were people who wanted to be. You know, I don't want to hang around in a studio all day while someone's doing a frigging percussion track. You know, I want to go off and see my mates and go to a gig or something. And I don't know. It was, rural Wales was not for you. I, I am not, not no. a rural person no. at all. And it was very rural. It's cut off, isn't it? It's quite a, yeah. yeah. You have to be that sort of person. You want to, yeah. yeah. I think Emma quite liked it. They had horses. I remember going horse riding. I couldn't walk for a week. <laughs> I couldn't sit down for a week. I think I was just perching. Yeah. You know, it was awful. And so, yeah. you know, it was, it was. oh, God, I just remember jigsaw puzzles. And I mean, you know what I mean? What the hell? I'm in a band. Um, anyway, so we recorded the... I'm on board with this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, I think how, you know, I think probably the great thing about going to a residential is, if you are, exactly the kind of band that we weren't, the kind of band that jams, that can sit around in a studio coming up with licks and, do you know what I mean, and sort of getting in the groove and all of that. But we weren't like that. All the bits were already bloody well written. You know, and aside from sitting there with the producer sometimes and thinking, well, it could do with a keyboard part. But that's just one person. That's not the whole band sitting around and, you know, making this sort of fantastic noise. And so it it was totally pointless. Um, and I think, you know, then when we had to mix the record and Mike Hedges wanted to go to his residential studio in France, you know, that's when the horror really started, wasn't it? I mean, I can actually, if I close my eyes, I can still see your expression <laughs> from back then, just slightly panicked and th- and wanting to say something to calm everything down, but really not knowing what to say. There just seems to be a lot of sitting around waiting <laughs> Like, get on a plane and go somewhere and then wait. <laughs> Why have I come here to wait? Waiting for, for a week. And I'll see you later then and I'm going back home. <laughs> yeah, and it was, everyone was quite tense. It was, I, I 
did make me think being in a band is not as much fun as it as it says on the box. Do you know what it makes me think of now? It makes me think of going into like enforced rehab. That's right, a good description. When you actually don't have an addiction, mm. right? We're just going to cut you off from everyone and give you nothing, no distractions. Right? There was one pinball machine that he had. There's no TV. There's no video. Nothing. There was one pinball machine, and even that, that fucker, he made us pay for it. <laughs> he gave us about five free goes, and they said, "Well, you have to go in the village and get some change." And we just had, oh my god! So that was the only thing that we yeah. had for entertainment, apart from bickering. And bitching about people. That was it. And then, of course, you come out of this residential uh, centre, mm. Stroke Studio, and you've recorded this album over a number of months. And then, of course, you kind of need a break, but really what you're going to do is you're going to get on tour <laughs> with each other. So, I mean, we're just painting the picture of what being a band is, I think, in a way, because I think it, it is hard work. It's much harder work than some people may imagine. So then you go off on tour. How was that? And well, it was difficult in the... Um, you know, I mean, actually, the album, because it had to be mixed, it was remixed, it was remixed, blah, blah, blah. It was really fiddled around with the load. It made everyone, um, everyone's a bit demoralised. And plus, it coincided with a lot of problems with 4AD, where Ivo was sort of relinquishing uh, our American kind of A&R guy, where he was having some sort of meltdown. Howard was crazy by then oh my god and so all the sort of people that we relied on to sort of you know if we were infighting and we were bickering you needed those people outside to stabilize it and go okay you know enough this is going well calm down and we didn't have any of that suddenly they were all of them having their private meltdowns and I think you know at that stage I don't know, you know, I mean, it was good. I always enjoyed touring. I always had quite a good time. I don't think Emma did, actually. Um, she much preferred being in the studio. Me and Chris used to have a lot of fun, actually. So although the touring for Split was, you know, quite full on, I didn't really mind it. I mean, I did slightly lose my marbles, but, you know, that was part and parcel of it. Because, again, when you say that that, you know, being in Dom front at the at the mixing or whatever was boring. Touring is boring. You know, most of it is sitting on a bus, getting somewhere, waiting, setting up gear. You know, doing a sound check. Then you've got a couple of hours. You know, and it sounds really glamorous. The, it doesn't sound that glamorous. Well, it sounds glamorous when you think, oh, you know, we're in Tokyo, yeah, or or yeah. you know, you get you're staying in a lovely hotel or, or, you know, and it's got a swimming pool and all of that sounds great, but it's actually a huge amount of waiting around, really, Mm -hmm. and that's why people just end up drunk, taking drugs, shagging everything that moves, you know what I mean? It's just bored, they just want distraction. Yeah. So anyway, you finished all this, (laughs) (laughs) and then you think we're going to do it again. So then you actually go through probably your most commercially successful period, which I was not witness to, but... um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you've been dumped by then. It's one way of looking at it. And then... (laughs) You never hit singles, didn't you, suddenly? You said, like, a look. Yeah, they were, yeah. They were, we got in the the top 40. There you go. And And a hit album? Um, yeah, actually, it did do well, didn't it? I always forget go, these life. things. Yeah, you yeah. should. 
You've got to remember yeah. that. This is like the, this is the, the commercial peak in a way. I suppose. Do you know what? I think part of the problem You're just is exhausted. Is, it's not even that. Right. It's that I when a, when someone has a hit record, I think, oh well, that's nice. I never think it's that deserved, you know. Who's to say that, you know, usually a load of the songs I like never touch the bloody top 40 and I don't really use it as a measure of quality. It's a really nice thing when it happens. It's a bit of extra attention and, you know, you get a bit of money and stuff, but it doesn't doesn't mean it's the best bloody record, does it? No, I wasn't saying that. So I think inside, when you're the one who's touring that record, you know, you do sort of think, well, Frankly, I thought the last record was better. This is all right. It's fine. Quite enjoying playing it. But, you know, blimey, talk about making a fuss when you couldn't, didn't even want to touch the last bloody record. It does sort of make you a right. bit, you know, a bit, well, maybe a bit yeah. cynical about it. I don't know. I mean, it was fun. It was fun, but it was relentless. I mean, we did a 30 date. UK bloody tour of Lady Killers. It's hard to imagine 30. I don't even, I know. How could there be 30 places to play? I, it was ridiculous. That were different. Wow. So. You know, and that was before the album was released. Um, so I think, I don't know. I think, you know, the the interesting thing about Love Life for me was that after we'd spent so much time on Split and, you know, like I say, mixing, remixing, tweaking, blah, 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 it actually kind of fell a bit flat critically. It didn't sell as much as Spooky. People sort of slagged it off quite a lot. And I thought often for the wrong reasons. I think Emma felt it was a bit out of kilter with the times. Yeah, it was. You know, it was a very introverted, quite down record at a time when suddenly all the sort of, I guess the Britpop stuff was coming up at that stage. Um, So, and I found it quite hard to deal with a lot of the criticism because I think we'd made such a personal record. There were all sorts of lyrical things you know Emma had written about her father dying I'd written about you know child abuse I mean you know it was kind of pretty heavy and it was sort of a bit dismissed in a slightly cruel way Mm. so it did make me think I don't think I can do that again and make myself that vulnerable so I Mm. think with Love Life we just thought okay enough with all the fussing about and you know we're just going to make this with our sound man we've done a lot of touring it's going to have the energy of pretty much playing live and it's going to be a little bit more you know i don't know not not as um you know soul searching you know yeah. a bit more playful yeah which sort of did fit with that kind of brit pop vibe that was going on yeah. um and yeah. it was fun you know, it's great record. I mean, I did have really good fun actually recording that album. Where did you record it? Um, was it at Playground Studios? I can't. I can never remember these things. You'll have to look it up. Okay. Um, it was, but it was in London. Yay! And you know, it was like I say, it was a peak. We had like mates coming in and doing hand claps, and you know, people doing. You know, Jarvis came in and did a. a duet on yeah. Chow and you know different friends dropping by and adding bits and pieces what's his name Dan from Kitchens of Distinction did a mm. load of percussion stuff it was hilarious you know yeah. we had really good fun yeah and uh, so then he went on tour mm. for a long time yeah yeah that was a bit too much I think again I think we changed management and you know when you when you're going back for the fourth time to Chicago 
with a completely unsuitable band that you're supporting and there's less people there to see you than the first time you went because they're going, well, I've already seen you three times this year, the tickets are expensive, plus you're playing with a band that I fucking hate, then it is quite demoralising. You do think, why the hell are we here? And we haven't even, you know, we haven't toured Europe... We hadn't really done any festivals. We, there was all these other things we wanted to do, but because America became the big, 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 big prize, um, I think that was a mistake, actually. I do agree, mm. you know. And, um, you know, it was always this thing dangled. Oh, well, if you do this, you know, then the record company will get really behind it and then college radio will take off. And it was always sort of, you know... And you're relying, I mean, you are relying on these people for the right information. You know, I'm not a bloody manager. I don't know these people at radio stations and record companies or whatever. That's why you have a manager, because they're meant to give you good advice. Mm. So it's tricky when they've got their own agenda, I think. And, you know, I don't think he did it maliciously. But I think, you know, they all get a bit swept away with it. And um, basically, it absolutely rung the last drops of any sort of joy yeah and any sort of camaraderie actually because I think Emma felt very resentful that we hadn't fought against it enough I think she felt that she was the only one sort of um you know trying to fight this and um I think that's really tricky with all bands, you know, it's how much of this are you saying for the good of the band, how much of it is actually, you know, for the group, blah, blah, blah. And once these rifts form, it's really difficult to kind of, you know, I mean, unless you do, you know, now I think, now that I know what I know, I'd do the Metallica thing and get a bloody therapist yeah, in. Yeah, really a good idea, actually. <laughs> Absolutely, that yeah. would have done us wonders. Yeah. You know. Did you did you think you were going to make another record or, or not? Or? Well, I think what happened at the end of Love Life is this band, you know, however much grief is going on, it's a really rare thing to get, you know, I mean, so much of success is luck. And, you know, and I thought, let's just give it another go. So I did say, look, if you want to do an album of Gregorian chants, okay, I will do that. And let's just try and meld back together into a band and, and, you know, protect what is actually quite a unique experience you know we've got a lot to be proud of got some great blah 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 you know but unfortunately you know uh we kind of we thought all right okay you know emma sort of agreed okay okay um and then basically chris went back to the lake district and that was the last time was that straight almost straight after the meeting it was about a week later he'd he'd been you know he was exhausted we were all exhausted from the tour but i think he'd Again, you know, in retrospect, I look at, you know, suicide amongst men who, you know, that 30 age is really tricky. You know, I think there's a period of, you know, growing up and suddenly facing, you know, I think there's a sort of almost a plateau of what have I achieved at this age? And I think you that's where you can tip into real darkness because you can feel that you haven't done enough to set up your life for the for the future. And I do think that was a part of it. You know, mm. I think he felt been plugging away at this band and, you know, it hasn't made it in the way I thought I would. I mean, even if it had, you know, I think he would have been facing the same problems, actually. 
But because Chris was someone who, like many, many men, you know, think that they're boring people with their problems, doesn't suit their outward image to be the person who is, you know, asking for help in any way, you know, um, I think that's kind of why we lost him, you know. I think people do know a lot better now. I think the signs are much more easy yeah. to pick up on and there is so much more help but I just don't think we had that then and well, it was kind of shocking because he's such he was such, I mean people always say nice things about dead people but he was such a such a wonderful funny fellow wasn't he and he was so outward going so it was, I was I was remember being blown away because it just didn't seem within his capabilities but obviously well exactly yeah. and no one you know no one expected that you know absolutely I mean I remember I remember having to ring people and tell, you know, leave messages and say, just so you know, this has happened. I remember Tim Freeze Green actually ringing me back. And because I just left this message and a kind of, look, please call me. Something terrible's happened, blah, blah, blah. He actually said, I kind of guessed that someone had died. Obviously, it wasn't you because you phoned. And I, he said, I literally thought it's got to be Emma. It might be Phil. There's absolutely no way it's Chris from a suicide, right? Um, and you know nobody thought he was so stable you know me and Emma and Chris could sit here and talk about our fuck ups right for hours right (laughs) when you sit there talk about childhood all the shit that's gone wrong in your life and Chris didn't have any of that lovely family beautiful upbringing in the Lake District Mm. it was great and people say why do you think he did it and I go I I actually don't know if I had an answer, I would have maybe been able to stop it. Yeah. But and afterwards, you you just you decided that was enough for you for music, you for a bit. For me, least. that for was you, that was it. That was the full stop. Yeah, yeah, I think I. Do you know what I did? I tried going to a couple of gigs, and it was just awful. I just <laughs> just end up sort of weeping in the bogs or something. You know, I just thought. I can't be in this environment because it's completely the loss of this person is I just need to change the whole landscape you know I can't be here anymore so I saw I got out yeah yeah okay Q presents the making of and I'm Mickey Brenny and so what you did was you had some children eventually 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 what did you do immediately after and what was the next few years well, and me and Moose had already started going out right. pretty much that year, actually. And interestingly, I think when something like that happens, it either, you know, completely breaks you apart or it pulls you very, very close together. And, you know, he was great. And so, you know, we had a couple of years of just, you know, it's all friends. And it was just, you know, I could afford to not work for a couple of years. So just vanished really it was almost like being in a sort of nest you know Mm. um and just kind of regrouped and then um basically just really boring practical things you know he did a TEFL course and uh, you know I got a friend to you know help me start doing proofreading and sort of get back into the working world you you sit there and you think I'm not qualified to do anything I'm in a band and people go why don't you have you thought of like maybe working at a management company or do you want to you know maybe I think you know like get a job in the music industry and I thought no I can't imagine anything worse you know I mean even when I started subbing people were like why don't you go and work at a music paper and I thought fuck off (laughs) doing that like you know 
um, I just didn't want to be anywhere around it, actually. No. Um, so, you know, we just made normal lives. And it's quite funny because when we had the kids and, you know, we moved where we moved to, even when I was working, I was li- working at TV listings at, um, and at Kings, uh, King's Reach Tower oh, yeah. for IPC. So I used to see people from the NME and bump yeah. into... Melissa Baker. We used to have, someone just saw Mickey, Mickey yes, and Lush in the yes, lifts. Yes. When I was it was quite a True. good barometer right. for who would say hi to me and who would blank me. Right. And I thought, oh yeah, I always thought you were a twat, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, so yeah, when I even when I worked there, I didn't tell anyone actually. I never used to really talk about it. It took a while for people to know that mm. I'd even been in a band. I mm. just didn't really um discuss it <laughs> what do you listen to nowadays what's what's your oh my god do you know what i get the i'm third in line for control of the music mm. in the house moose, moose is first really yeah moose puts things on and then leaves the room and i'm like thank you for that I'm um familiar with that too actually right <laughs> yeah stella's second that's my daughter how old is she uh, she'll be 18 right, in okay. April, so yeah, yeah. So she gets quite a bit of control, and then I basically when everyone leaves the room, and I think oh, okay, so I can put something on. <laughs> but I, to be honest, I don't really, I don't really have time to really get into music in the way that I used to. Mm. I hear something and I think oh that was nice, you know. But six music or whatever, you know, whatever's on. Do you ever go to gigs? Um, I do occasionally, but again, it's often because there's like a bit of a connection, right. you know, um, it's quite funny when, uh, when we did the, like some of the last reunion tour, we did a few festivals and like Stella came to a few gigs as well. And that was when she first saw Fat White Family, actually. And she was like really into them. And I was like... Oh yeah, these are really good, and so I might go and after you know. But by then they became her band, right? Yeah. So when they played at Brixton, I think I was away. I think Lush were away, and Moose was like uh, going, "Oh, I'm going to go to that." She was going, "No, you can't come. You <laughs> can't come." He did go, but he said, "She said, no, you've got to stay at the bar and don't come anywhere near me and don't speak to me." Oh, <laughs> like, uh, and so there'll be no more Lush reunions either. That's, that's no, <laughs> no, God, okay. no. Yeah. It just, I think it ended very badly. And I think because, you know, because there were a lot of old resentments, you know, um, it kind of fell apart. I mean, I was a bit out of control. I what did, did you do? Well, you know, <laughs> basically, I know, I know. I mean, there was an issue in that we had, uh, the, the, you know, so the big... The kind of going on tour was mainly the funding was, you know, the roundhouse gigs and we got Coachella. That was the big deal, right? And that would fund the rest of the tour. But because I had like a bloody drink drive thing, right, which, you know, meant that my visa got delayed, okay? And, of course, the problem is, is that when you apply for these visas, you go to the American embassy... I mean, I don't know if you talk to bands about trying to get into America. It's a bloody nightmare trying to get work permits. They literally only let you kind of have the interview very shortly before you're going to go. 
And when I went, I was like, okay, I've got all my documents, I've got a police report, I've got everything you need. And they go, right, but you have to have a medical. And I'm like, okay, and it has to be at this private clinic. So I'm like, fine. And they, honestly, it's a madness. They give you they give you a chest x-ray to see if you've got TB, which literally like the worst tramps in the <laughs> fucking world don't have. Um, they... They wanted access to my medical record, so I had to go back to my GP, and they were like... And I said, OK, so they're saying that you can just kind of fax them to them, and I remember this doctor going, that's not how the NHS works. <laughs> <laughs> so that was another five days, oh. and the clock was ticking, and it was going down, and so basically we missed the first Coachella, and that was... So half our fee was gone, and um, and I think... You know, they were both really, really angry about that. And while I understand that, you know, and, you know, there is an issue that when first we were applying for these visas, you know, there was forms to fill in and la, 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 la. And I hadn't put the DUI on there. It doesn't say, have you got a drink driving conviction? It said, have you had a conviction? And I thought that meant going to prison. <laughs> okay, so I didn't know, all right? right? It was a mistake, you know? This is the bit I'm going to get you to erase later. But you know what I mean? <laughs> all I'm saying is yeah. that I felt I made a genuine mistake, yes. which I did flag up with a few months to go, you know? And I did say, oh, my God, oh, my God, I think there's going to be a problem. We, Whoa, hang on, we need to sort this out. And everyone involved went, it'll be fine. And then it wasn't fine. Yeah. And the minute it wasn't fine, this guillotine came down and fingers pointed and went, this is all your fault and we're not going to forgive you. So I was angry. So then I was pissed off, you know. And Did you um, not think it resolved, is it? No, this, that, you'll never resolve it as, as a... As a well, we could do if we all sat down and admitted our, you know, mistakes. But, you know, basically... We did the rest of the American tour. It was a little bit, you know, awkward. But, you know, what happened was I, I get the feeling that, you know, the others did sort of park their anger and we got on with the tour. But then basically, I mean, Phil just wouldn't shut up about it. And I lost it one night and <laughs> physically attacked him. I was like, right, that is it. So there was a big fight. And then Emma piled in. Wow. Yeah. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, yeah, it was full on. It was absolutely full on. Yeah. Okay. Well, and that's the end of Lush. That was the <laughs> So let's 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 just quickly think about um if push came to shove and you'd choose one of your songs from across all your career to be your calling card, which song would you choose? Which is your favorite? Song? What a Lush song? Well, might as well be. <laughs> um oh. You don't have to. I mean, that you 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 could have played in it. You don't have to have written it yourself. It could have, or one that you've written. I don't mind. Choose you choose one. I don't know. It's How can like, I choose it? Well, I don't know. What's your favourite song by Lush? If I had to pick one that I wrote, I'd say Light from a Dead Star. There you go. Well, that is a classic. So that's okay. a good one. I'm glad you picked that one. You must have been in Smash Hits, right? Yeah. Did you ever 
have to do the biscuit tin thing at Smash It. Do you remember the biscuit tin? No. Okay, so they're the biscuit tin full of questions and those sort of random silly questions. Okay. We've started the idea and we've got a biscuit tin, but it's not. It's actually an envelope and some random questions. Right. Would you answer five of them for us, please? It's like, imagine it's a biscuit tin okay. and not just a mailer. Do you mind doing this? No, 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 I don't. I'm, gonna... I'm intrigued. I'm just trying to think what sort of questions are in there. I basically just took them from old smash hits. Oh, so, did you? Oh, okay. Yeah, so so they're, like it, they're the real thing. What is the most exotic thing that you can cook? Oh. Oh, I do loads of cooking. I can cook loads of exotic things. Peking duck, you know, lamb tagine. Whatever you want, I can cook it all. <laughs> it's fine. Fantastic. Okay, let's pick another one. Thank you. If you are reincarnated, what would you like to come back as? Oh, what rather than who? Okay. Or it could be who. Uh, um, um, hmm. I think a... I used to go and pick something really boring and just say a cat. Because I think cats kind of live quite a long time for the sort of size and <laughs> stuff that they are and they're always just looked after really well I could do with a, sort strokes. Of a real pampered lifestyle I yeah. think I'd quite like that <laughs> yeah you do as, yeah. as many as you want right okay uh, what would you have ended up doing if you hadn't become a musician can I do that one is yeah. that alright okay um, <laughs> ooh. oh oh Gosh, I don't know. Probably something. I think at school it was always, oh, you should become an architect because you're good at art and maths, which is just really crap advice, isn't it? Like I would have become an architect, but... You'd been a high roller. (laughs) I'd have been designing porter cabins. (laughs) Yeah, probably. (laughs) It's often that old staircase or something. Uh, How was your first kiss? The problem with that is it's actually... (laughs) Slightly traumatic. <laughs> okay, well, let's not do that one. <laughs> um, uh, when was the last time you had a punch up? I've already answered that. It was literally on a bus coming out of Chicago, I think, when when um, Phil said that it was my fault, everything was my fault, and then I had a punch up. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> Um, if you had to have your own head, but the body of an animal, what animal would you choose? Your own head, but the body of an animal. Yeah, you'd want to be able to... No, something that flies, actually. You'd want something that flies, wouldn't you? Bird's yeah. eye view, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. My head would be a bit outside on a bird, though. So you want to be it? a big bird, though, because you don't want anyone to pick up eagle. I'm yeah. T- I'm going for eagle. Eagle's good. Yeah. Eagle's good. Yeah. You know, Kestrel will do. Ke- yeah. I quite, yeah, yeah, I like, I'd sort of rather be in Britain, I think. Okay. Yeah, Kestrel, despite Brexit, but yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, do you have any hidden talents outside of music? Um, yeah, loads. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I mean, you know. <laughs> It's like in the way that anybody does, you know. Well, I don't know. I, I can no speak talent. Hungarian. I can cook. I can... Um, uh, I guarantee you no one else in this room can speak Hungarian. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there's a unique... That's... A, well, unusual. Me and everyone country. in Hungary, but yeah. Obviously Hungarian. <laughs> right. um, 
One more. What's the one thing that would instantly improve your quality of life? Ooh. Um, to be honest, I'm all right, actually. <laughs> Good answer. Yeah. Good. <laughs> Mickey, I think we've done it. Okay. I think we've done this interview. It's been a pleasure. I'm happy that you came here and did this. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank um, you. I guess all that remains is for me to thank producer Sue. And I just need to ask uh, all the listeners to please rate and subscribe to us on iTunes because that's going to be very, very useful to us and we'll be uh, very appreciated. Um, we want to feel loved, but we also want iTunes to know that we're loved. So that's, that's the idea. See you all next week for another Belter. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so, yes, when you listen back to that, just don't yeah, make sorry. me sound like a complete fucking lunatic <laughs> with all that um, stuff. Okay, Q presents the making of, and I'm Mickey Brenny. Done. Lovely. <laughs> that wasn't so terrible, was it? Oh, God. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks. Yeah, no problem. <laughs>